With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello and welcome to Outwards December 2018 episode. I'm Christina Cotarucci, a staff writer at Slate and host of The Waves, Slate's podcast about women and gender. And I hope that everyone here has watched the Netflix Christmas movie The Princess Switch in preparation for the inevitable queer sequels, The Princess Top and The Princess Bottom. I have not, but it's so good. Rotten Tomatoes tells me that it has 89%, so I don't know <laughs> Actually, what I'm doing. Actually, I, I love it, but that still somehow surprises me. <laughs> that's amazing. I'm Brian Lauder, editor of Outward, uh, and I am just here to offer you your annual reminder that Lady Gaga once recorded a Christmas song that is about Christmas trees and sex and includes <laughs> the immortal lyric, Oh, oh, Christmas, my Christmas tree's delicious. So, <laughs> go listen to that. that I forgot about that song. I also love your Go listen to that if you, uh, if you haven't heard it in a while or have never heard it. Uh, and it'll, it'll give you all the festivity that you could desire. <laughs> and I'm Brandon Tensley, the associate editor at New America and a contributing writer at Pacific Standard Magazine. And to be honest, I'm just glad that it's once again Mariah Carey season have y'all seen the adorable video of her singing All I Want for Christmas is You with her kids as her backup singers? No, I haven't. No. Oh Maybe my God. I should. Yeah, it came out like a week ago, but it's a total diva move and it's totally Mariah Carey. So back to back listening. We have it. We have a playlist for our listeners now. All right. So obviously we're all getting into the holiday spirit of our secular seasonal camp. But this time of year is also a time when people embrace other kinds of spirituality, sometimes more so than they do around the other times of the year. You know, there's Christmas, there's Hanukkah, and there's all sorts of other like friend celebrations of gratitude. Um, So our theme for this month is spirituality. For us and this episode, it takes many forms, introspection, utopian futurism, organized religion, beliefs about the movements of the planets and their pull on our personalities and relationships and bodies. So we are going to take a broad look today at how LGBTQ people conceive of and organize their spiritual lives and practices. First, we're going to talk about why queers are so obsessed with astrology and the Enneagram. Then we're going to interview Leo Herrera, the writer and director of a short film series called The Father's Project, which imagines a world where AIDS never happened and where all the gays that we lost to the disease had lived. And then we'll hear from Laura Root, a gay woman who has chosen to stay in the Mormon church despite being excommunicated and despite its anti-gay policies and teachings. And finally, we will answer a question from a listener about how to define her sexuality when she's only attracted to certain kinds of women. But first, we're going to kick things off with our December Pride and Provocations. As a reminder, prides are things our fellow queers have done that make us smile, whereas provocations are examples of bad queer behavior as upsetting as Bette Porter's infamous exhibition with the same name on The L Word. 
So I will kick things off. And this month I have a pride stemming from a provocation. Mm. Mm. So that provocation is the AIDS erasure in the tributes to H.W. Bush, um, who died at the end of November. So on the one hand, I understand the trickiness and the complexity of mourning. You know, a life is gone. And also that life was most likely not perfect, just like nobody is perfect. But what was so maddening to me was how detached so many of these tributes were from what I would consider just a historical reality. Mm-hmm. Few mentioned the, you know, his infamous record on race. Um, they didn't really mention his silence on the AIDS crisis. Uh, they mainly focused on, you know, oh, he was this very decent person. He was a gentleman. He was the last of his sort of kind of genteel, I know, I know, conservative, (laughs) (laughs) essentially the opposite of Donald Trump, which is a low bar these days. But from that, what I saw, what I've been thinking about a lot over the past uh, week or so is the very critical, affirming and accurate uh, remembrances that came from this, especially from queer folks who had actually lived through H.W. Bush's tenure. Um, And so one I just want to highlight really quickly is uh, it came from Masha Gessen at The New Yorker. And so she wrote... In my early 20s, living in New York City, I often went to more than one memorial service a week. I was bearing more of my peers than my grandparents were. Um, And then she also wrote, the tributes make it plain that our current experience of ordinary visibility is contingent. One minute we are here, and then a president dies, and we are gone. So I just thought about these lines a lot, um, and they were heartbreaking, but very affirming, um, but also maddening, and all these different emotions that have been swirling around for the past couple weeks. But, you know... On the whole, it essentially showed just how our em- empathy is very much limited by our memory. Yeah, I, I also felt provoked by that. My provocation this month is not necessarily something that queer people are doing, but something that affects queer lives. And it's I learned about this in a piece in the Daily Beast last week. Um, so every two years, the CDC does this na- nationwide study of high school students. It's called the Youth Risk Behavior Survey. I've written about it a bunch. It's you know tells us what percentage of high schoolers have had sex and and what are they using drugs and like are they drinking and are they depressed. But only since 2015 have they been asking students to also identify whether they're lesbian, gay, or bi. They still don't ask about gender identity. But, you know, it's been super helpful and important because there's just a real lack of data about what LGB lives are like in high schools. Now, according to a study in the American Journal of Public Health, these researchers have found that there's a bunch of teen boys. It's almost exclusively boys, who are lying on the surveys and saying that they're gay and also blind and also deaf and eight feet tall and have used heroin 50 times and weigh 666 pounds just to kind of like be funny and throw off the data. And so luckily there's ways for researchers to account for this, like basically looking at all the ridiculous outliers on some of these surveys. And because at first they were like, wow, LGB students are like way more likely to be deaf and are like a foot taller than their peers. Like, what's going on here? And then they realized that there were just these certain surveys where people had just basically, you know, completely lied because they thought it'd be funny to pretend they were gay. So this provokes me in a very uh, primal sense because it just awakens these horrible memories I have of being in middle school and high school with boys like these who like thought being gay was a hilarious joke and also just um, got a kick out of sort of making life harder for people who were trying to do good things, like collect surveys that help you deliver services to people who need them. I'm currently writing a piece about uh, suicidality in 
LGBT youth. And a lot of the the data that I'm looking at is from the CDC and from this survey, which, again, it's only been done twice where they're collecting data on these populations. Um, And so it just makes me so mad that some people that it's still like fun and funny in high school to a a, say you're gay when you're not and then be like fuck things up for people who are trying to get very necessary data. Wasn't there like a small bit of uh, I read that I read that story too. Wasn't there a small piece of good news from it though, which is that it's it seemed like the at least around uh, I think it was just substance abuse, like this n- realizing this and accounting for it actually made it clear that that LGBT youth were not as or were as equally as likely as other groups to be abusing those substances. Yeah, I feel like that's yeah. So that's that's like a piece of you know, at least, at least, you know, that's that's uh, not as bad as we maybe thought it was before. Yeah. So there was actually good news to come out of the survey once they were able to account for right. these mischievous, no good yeah. <laughs> high school students. But yeah, the fact that they're doing it is still provoking to yeah. me. Yeah, I'm also just like imagining like this is how you would like to spend your limited amount of time on Earth. It's like messing up the survey. <laughs> like it just sounds like a colossal waste of time. But you know, high school kids, I guess. Boys. Yeah. Yeah. So I have uh, a pride this okay. month. I just I just went to a really wonderful Christmas concert here in New York. Um, my mom was in town, and so we went to do that, and it was it was wonderful. And you know, it was, it was one of these things where they had uh, multiple choirs and an orchestra, and um, you know, just a, a, it was in, in, in a, a cathedral here. It was it was really beautiful. But watching that, I was reminded of all of the gay um, choir directors, music directors, organ church organists who, particularly in December bring all the drama and spectacle of gay sensibility into their various houses of worship for uh, Christmas concerts. This is a thing that I think happens across the country. And, you know, some of these folks are out, some of them are not out necessarily. But it's a time of year when you can really feel, I think, gay sort of gay aesthetics and gay presence uh in in these spaces and it was it was you know this concert was beautiful and i know there will be many others so um when you're at your local if you go to a a local like christmas cantata or or something like that just take note of uh of the gay gift that's being given to you by these those folks i love the word cantata it sounds very gay it sounds like a gay (laughs) dessert that you would make brian oh absolutely doesn't it yeah we should make one we should invent one (laughs) Okay, so for our first theme segment today, we're going to talk about why queers love astrology and the Enneagram. So for the uninitiated, the Enneagram is sort of a philosophy of personality types. It's based around a diagram that has the numbers one through nine going around a circle and then connected by lines that make sort of like a star without a bottom. And It's sort of a self-identification system. You can take a personality test or just sort of read through the nine personality types and call yourself one of them. And then depending on what number you are and that number's relation to the other numbers in the circle, you might have different attributes from the different other personality types too. For this segment, we would like to invite our producer, Daniel Schrader, to join the conversation because proud Virgo that he is, he has insisted from the very beginning of this podcast that we have an astrology segment. (laughs) Hi, Daniel. Welcome. 
Hi, y'all. I'm so excited to be here. <laughs> we know. Um, <laughs> okay, so the animating question of this segment is one that I would like you to answer first, since you are maybe the most excited out of all of us for this. What about astrology appeals to you as a queer person? But wait, wait, wait. Shouldn't we say yes? Oh, do we have to First identify ourselves? Because this. I don't think we can have this conversation honestly and productively without knowing. <laughs> well, of course not. All of these things. No. So, Daniel, um, what, is, what are so your So, I'll sign? start. Yeah. I am a, a Virgo sun on the Leo cusp with a Leo rising and a Taurus moon. Mm-hmm. Oh, my God. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm unprepared for this. <laughs> Christina? I'm a Sagittarius cusp of Scorpio. All I know is that I'm a Gemini Cancer cusp. I don't know about know about any moons or rising. You have so many cuspings. <laughs> I'm a Virgo sun, Taurus rising, and Pisces moon, which is very important to me. Cool. Mm-hmm. <laughs> All right. So the reason that I love astrology, um, specifically from a queer perspective, is because like it it feels magical. It feels fun. It embraces the seriousness and lack of seriousness of itself all at once, and that in itself feels like a queer experience to me. And I think it offers a lot of the same spiritual benefits of something like an organized religion without having to um, go through all of the problems of how organized religions feel about gay people. And so I think it's just pure fun, but then is also very helpful at the same time. Yeah, I feel like like it's imp- I don't want to speak for everyone else, but I feel like my engagement with it is definitely not on the order of like, I really think that this planet is going backwards and like doing this. Mercury is in retrograde, which means Mercury is actually going backwards and like doing something to me. But rather it just offers this, this like, like fun and kind of like structuring slightly a little bit, like interpretive frame to the chaos of the world. Yeah. Even if it's not, even if, if I know for it, like in my heart that it's not real like it that doesn't really matter somehow. it lets me queer science mm. <laughs> Ooh, huh. i love that yeah i think there's also an element of self-determination to it even though it is based on your birthday and birth time and all that i mean even more so with the enneagram where you literally just call yourself one of the nine personality types i think the astrology is not prescriptive it offers sort of a narrative frame that you can mm-hmm. apply however you want to your own life and you know, as you mentioned, Daniel, queer people have sort of been denied a lot of opportunities for meaning making and for, you know, dreaming up or remembering these coherent and historically consequential narratives for our own lives connected to something larger than ourselves, like the planets. And I also wonder if because LGBT people often can't participate as our f- full selves in many religions, the way that those religions treat queer people might just be turning a lot of us off to organized religion in general. Like, even though there are a lot of churches that are very accepting of queer people and have queer leaders and whatever, I wonder if a lot of those interpretations of, you know, Christianity and what have you that are moralizing and anti-sex and anti-diversity and sexual expression that queer people are like, well, maybe that's all bunk and I'm going to think about the planets instead. (laughs) Yeah, like... For me, I feel like the thing with um, astrology is that there is absolutely a performance element to it, uh, very similar to like what you're saying, right? Where it's it's not prescriptive, it's quite abstract um, in a lot of ways. And so like, I feel like there's just this opportunity for queer people to really bend the parts of themselves that they want um, into whatever it is that this thing is supposed to be. 
And so, you're, you know, you're just assigned this role slash identity and you can really just like take it and run with it and do whatever you want with it. And I think it's hilarious when uh, one of my friends so just like, oh, God, you're such a Gemini cancer cusp. Another thing I just thought of when you, you know, were kind of listing all these things off, like I'm a Taurus sun and a Virgo moon and this thing rising and this other thing cusp. I think about the way a lot of introductions go at if you're at like a queer conference or some sort of, you know, consciousness raising workshop. Mm. And it's like, you know, I'm a cis switch femme who's into kink and like mm-hmm. identifies as blah and part of X community. And like, I have this whole list of identities. And I think for all that queer people, uh, you know, hate labels or being boxed in or having binaries in other ways, we really like those things or, or, you know, Absolutely. having characters to inhabit and also feeling seen and, and feeling like, you know, we've, we've introspected the shit out of ourselves and know <laughs> ourselves super well and can also know intimate things about other people before we even enter our first conversation with them. I think that's so true. Like I, I was, when I was thinking, thinking about like, why, you know, why do we care? Why do we like this, these systems so much? It's, I think it's, I think there are a lot of reasons, but one sort of one that seems pretty basic to me is that is like, we're used to thinking categorically about ourselves as queer people from the word go because you have to you you know you're deciding where do I fit into the acronym or whatever and what are the gradations of that and 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 all of that and so it makes it's a perfect sense that we would naturally be then inclined to to you know find something interesting in system another system that's much much like that actually yeah i would also say that in my experience it gives us another language to communicate with mm-hmm. like another mm-hmm. common shared gay language because whenever i am at a queer brooklyn party everyone within five minutes is like oh are you on co-star which is a um <laughs> astrology <laughs> oh bless your hearts um <laughs> co-star is the most important app of 2018 oh um as it, ranked by uh, Daniel Schrader or? Ex- yes. <laughs> and every Brooklyn queer you'll meet. But it is an app where you can sign up, you can sign in and put your uh, date of birth, time of birth, location, and it gives you your birth chart in a very like beautiful way. But then also you can link up with your friends mm. and then you it will give you your compatibilities. Oh, so wow. it will tell you like, oh, well, because you are a like Virgo mercury that's going to conflict with this person who's like an aries mercury and so and it'll explain like why and so it just kind of is a very quick shorthand to understand like the type of person someone is either a if they're into it or not or b like what they actually are like i know i always end up trying to date an aries and i shouldn't Hmm. Hmm. and so i've like learned that about myself well here's a question actually that this that that brings up like do like among us do, do y'all you actually use astrology to make decisions so like whether about dating i actually i will completely confess that i used it last night to decide whether or not to go to a holiday party because <laughs> uh, i didn't really i didn't feel like it really i was sort and this i think this is this is probably like the worst kind of astrology but I, I i and in some ways it was like flipping a coin honestly but i did pull up my daily astrology um reading and it said that I would benefit from being social that day. And so I went and I, and I didn't feel like and it was fine. It was fun. Um, so I'm kind of glad I did. But oh, interesting. I wonder how often, you know, mm-hmm. y'all actually use it in that way, like as a as a direction giving thing. I have literally never used it for anything. <laughs> <laughs> I went through a phase in um, third grade where I was obsessed with my Sagittarian identity and like reading mm-hmm. every book about it and completely identified with it 
in part because I think it's a very flattering sign. <laughs> it's like, Some I'm adventurous, like life of the party, let's have fun. <laughs> uh, so I'm like, yes, yes, yes. Um, but I, That's such a childhood Sagittarius thing to do. <laughs> it was. And I think I... I have fun with astrology more than I rely on it for anything serious. Although I think your scenario, um, Brian, could be like why some people say flipping a coin is useful because then as soon as the coin flips, you realize you were hoping for one thing over another. So even just reading something, it could help clarify for you what you think about something else. But I think that I actually thought this was a funny piece that I found online on them.us and the subhead on the article, it was like the queer astrology skeptics. And the subhead was, not all queer people believe in astrology. And those who don't often feel alienated from the LGBTQ plus community at large. So I think in some circles, it really is uh, sort of a given that people would take astrology seriously and and might do something like look at your whatever co-star ratings and say like, oh, I'm going to avoid that person because, you know, our signs clash. <laughs> One other great part of that them article was it said that many people told the author that they feel stigmatized by the larger queer community for their beliefs. That is their belief that astrology isn't real. And they would not allow their full names to be published for fear of being stigmatized. Wow. <laughs> Reprisals. Oh, Doxing my God. People. They're probably all Aquariuses. <laughs> <laughs> so this brings me to um, the Enneagram because this is something that a, a, a subset of my circle of friends really loves, and I hate it so much. I think in part because of the way it was pitched to me, which was, you know, a lot of my friends trying to identify me and my partner without our consent. And mm. this is really supposed to be a self-identifying thing. So a lot of people were like, oh, you're such a four, and like, oh, your partner's such an eight, and all these other things. And I feel, I felt like, that they were sort of relying on stereotypes to identify us as Enneagrams and that, you know, some sometimes I'm a hard ass in, in my relationship. And I was like, just because I'm the more feminine partner doesn't mean that I'm the one that's like more take charge and that she's not the one who's more like soft and tender and melancholy and whatever. Then I took the Enneagram personality <laughs> test and it put me as a four. <laughs> so uh, clearly I, I, my anger was misplaced. But this is all a long way of saying that. I asked those friends, you know, why do you think queer people love Enneagrams so much? And they're like, actually, I think it's, it kind of tra- can trace back to specific people. That it's, it may not be a cultural phenomenon, but just that queer circles can be so small that if one person, as, you know, three degrees removed from me, apparently there's a queer person – a trans guy whose brother is also queer and trans. They were both raised with the Enneagram, like by their parents. They were an Enneagram family. And then they ended up teaching it to all their friends and partners and, you know, partners, friends and whatever. And then those people taught it to their friends and partners and partners, friends. And now all of a sudden, a lot of us think Enneagram is a queer thing and maybe it's not. Well, I remember like in college, uh, one of my friends in particular was so into the Enneagram. Like she only half jokingly like would refuse to meet a new person until she knew like what their type was oh wow um and i was just like this is is, like really extreme because what i wonder is like is there a sort of like feedback loop with this thing like oh somebody says that you're this and so on some level are you going to start sort of like embodying that or thinking like I don't know. I say this because I hate my t- my type <laughs> is the three, um, which is the achiever, which is essentially a way of saying that I am shallow and self-centered and I'm a monster 
not even in the good Nicki Minaj way. Like, you know, <laughs> I'm a motherfucking monster. Just like, no, like, you need help. <laughs> um, but I also was thinking like, hmm, so many of these things do seem true. But I wonder if like, I'm going to start like, I don't know, buying into it necessarily, but just using it as a sort of like crutch to like explain away some things. Whereas like, actually, that's maybe not true. But just because something told you it's true or like it's accurate doesn't doesn't mean it. So I don't know. I'm I always think about like the which direction some of these things work in after a certain point. Or to explain away other people's behaviors like, mm-hmm. oh, you're such a whatever, you know, like, oh, no, actually, that was a completely idiosyncratic yeah. <laughs> decision that I made that has nothing to do with this, you know, framework that may or may not be relevant to my life. Well, see, I, yeah, I like the Enneagram was new to me, actually, when we, I took, I took the test uh, for the podcast and I found it much more like the tone of it. I didn't like as much as like compared to astrology, like it, it felt more judgy and kind of diagnostic, which I guess maybe, maybe that's the point, but it didn't like astrology types, like, like being a Virgo or like a Pisces moon, like those are these like almost, what do I want to say? Like literary or like metaphorical sort of spaces that are that are a little looser that you can inhabit and see good and and it's not about saying like this is a adaptive quality or a maladaptive quality or something it's like this is like a constellation of of sort of tendencies that you might have whereas see what you did there yeah thank you (laughs) uh whereas the uh enneagram it felt much more like a psychologist diagnosing you and I, and I, I reacted sort of viscerally against it as well. I do feel like it only picked up on the Virgo aspects. I, I'm in type, <laughs> I was a, a type one with wing and two or something like that. You know, I think some of that stuff is true, but I think it, it missed a lot of my emotional life actually that because of the kinds of questions it asked. Mm-hmm. You, you, yeah. You're not um, in your head. Yeah. So actually I wish June were here to talk about this with us because while she is not an Enneagram person either, um, her partner is. And I mentioned to her earlier today about like, I wish she was going to be on this chat with us. And um, we were talking about, the difference between astrology and Enneagrams, because I don't really like Enneagrams. I don't like Myers-Briggs. I don't like things where I have to take a test that then I get to answer questions about myself and it tells me what I am. It feels very narcissistic in a way that astrology isn't because astrology feels more outside in than inside out. Mm. And um, June said that uh, her partner framed it as astrology is a pseudoscience. Enneagram is a pseudo-philosophy. I guess maybe I don't think that pseudo is the right use there. I think maybe in a way to think about it is like Enneagrams could let you queer philosophy the way that I believe oh. that astrology lets you queer science. But I think that Enneagrams, they are not they are too broad in a way that astrology isn't, even though it is, because yeah, everything, it comes down to some sort of stereotype. But like, there are so many specifics in astrology, like your sun, your moon, your rising, your mercury, your... um. <laughs> Like all the planets where they're placed and then also where all those planets are placed in relation to each other uh, that could possibly have influences on you if you believe astrology. Whereas like Enneagrams, it's just nine numbers and how those numbers interact. I do think and and this is informed by one of the Enneagram loving friends who I talked to before uh, coming on the show today. She phrased it like this. Um, I'm going to sort of paraphrase her. Queerness can be a space for unpacking and questioning things in one's life that the sort of like hetero, cis, white, hetero patriarchy does not allow for. And it's it's just a way of 
thinking about human behavior in a new way. And, and, and there's also some sort of sense of magic, too, that I think astrology has where it's, you know, a fun thing to think about and to uh, like a lens to place over your life to give you a new sense of, you know, meaning or, or reason. Um, and I also learned from a different friend who loves the Enneagram, who is an ex-evangelical, that evangelical Christians love the Enneagram too. In huh. fact, her mom recently took an Enneagram class at her evangelical church. And another thing that queers love, the five love languages – also has its mm-hmm. origins in Christianity. And I learned while <laughs> researching uh, astrology that uh, the church was like a main purveyor or sponsor of astrology um, mm-hmm. in, in its early stages. And so uh, I think that there is some overlap between these uh, frameworks that queers are drawn to and the sorts of religion and the sorts of things that that religions are trying to give people too, like a way to understand your own relationships and a way to build self-awareness and introspection and outrospection. It, it like makes sense in that it's like you're trying to find meaning in things. And I think what makes it fun is the fact that you keep it at a level that's like fun. like the way that you used it, Brian, right? Yeah. I also wanted to mention, well, two things. First, I think that there is a special connection between lesbians and queer women and astrology and some of this like new age healing stuff in part because women's lib and gay rights movements kind of gained steam around the same time that new age spirituality was gaining proponents in the West. Um, But also because religions are extremely uh, patriarchal and have glorified men over women. And so I think a lot of women have felt drawn to like, witchiness and wicca and you know the the planets you've got like periods and and the moon and you know even like a common menstrual cup is called the luna cup because like the moon and like women and fertility and blah and so i wonder i you know there's a connection that i don't think we should elide the second thing that that i got thinking about when i read the them.us article about queer skeptics who are being ostracized from their communities because they don't believe in astrology some people, some of these ostracized skeptics were saying that they think they want to caution queer people not to get too into astrology because they think it'll make us more liable to get taken advantage of by con people and crooks. And that, you know, if we're f- focusing on this sort of like self-realization and introspection and stuff, we're going to it's going to be like the opiate of the masses and we're going to completely ignore these systemic oppressions that we face. Someone just sighed on the other end of the yeah. microphone. <laughs> yeah, that was that's so boring. So what you're right, saying is that like... co-star is stealing my data. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like we're smarter than that. I'm kind of not worried. <laughs> yeah, I yeah queers like... are the scammers. We're not getting scammed. <laughs> that's right. No, I mean, we're we are capable of enjoying something with you know tongue firmly planted in cheek and knowing knowing what it is and what it isn't and you know and it, and I think there's there's a pleasure to be taken in rebelling a, a bit against those kinds of folks that you just were mentioning Christina and and these like even larger systems that you know it, it's we've all, we've always had to do that so it is it is again not surprising to me that we take a certain amount of um, glee in seeming to reject 
like science, even though we don't actually, most of us aren't actually doing that. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Daniel. You added so much star and sparkle to this conversation. Of course. This is a blast, guys. Thanks for having me. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The Father's Project is a web series built as an answer to a deceptively simple question. What if AIDS had never happened? What would queer life look like today if all those we lost to the disease had lived? In the show, creator Leo Herrera imagines that we'd be living in something close to a queer utopia, with vibrant queer colonies spread across the U.S., a gay presidential candidate in the 2020 election, and community-designed paupers that cure all STIs. We're excited to have Leo with us today to discuss his vision and his profound faith in the ability of queer people to transform the world. But first, let's listen to a clip from the second episode, which dropped earlier this month. By the 90s, gay disco culture had penetrated the mainstream so deeply that rush poppers were advertised to housewives on daytime TV, and colonies received government subsidies to build gay clubs the size of cathedrals to revitalize local economies. Stonewall Nation has become a global destination for entertainment and decadence. This influx of people and freedom had its consequences. At the end of the 90s, a rise in venereal disease posed a threat to the health of the colonies. However, the government offered little assistance for this, so Stonewall Nation funded the GMHF to develop a solution. What resulted was the most innovative medical advancement since antibiotics. Imagine, poppers that protect you from STIs. Introducing Espera, the first inhalable prophylactic developed by the Gay Men's Health Force. Espera prevents the sexual transmission so Leo, uh, thanks so much for jumping on the phone with us today. So, you know, I, I spoke a Thanks little bit about me. what the Father's Project web series sort of looks like and what the narrative in it is to the extent that there's a narrative. But I wondered if you could just tell us a little bit about the origin of this idea, because it's such a surprising and, and somewhat sensitive one, I think, you know, to, to imagine this. So where did it come from for you and how did you start uh, developing it? The original idea for fathers basically came out of necessity, like all big ideas, I guess. There's such a uh, generational gap. And during the community conversations about prep, I realized the scope of the lack of older men Can we have say to what talk prep to is about quickly. certain issues. And I've always, yeah, prep is Truvada, which is a daily pill that you can now take that mm -hmm. prevents the transmission of HIV. So it's a huge game changer, and it can prevent transmission up to 99.9% if taken daily. So we basically have our first real protection against transmitting the disease. And when that first came out, there was a huge community uproar, and a really divisive, it was a really divisive issue about our own sexuality, the way we were expressing it. Mm -hmm. There was a lot of slut-shaming going on. There was a lot of uh, survivors that were really, really terrified. You could, I mean, you could really feel the fear in the air during mm -hmm. that time, which was, I think, 2014. 
And I was really, really confused about the issue myself. And I had just started dating somebody who was HIV positive. And I just basically didn't know what to do. And it dawned on me that, you know, we, mm-hmm. there wasn't anybody that I could call. And so as is the case with a lot of queer history stuff, the answers are there. So you get to research a lot of, you know, the sexual liberation pre-AIDS, how much AIDS changed, and then sort of the project. It started off as a imaginary cure for AIDS, and then it just kind of morphed into this idea yeah, of like, what if it just have, never um, happened? In the first episode, there's this beautiful scene, sort of, I think it's actually in the prologue, if I'm not mistaken, um, where... You have some sisters of perpetual indulgence do a kind of ritual. And and this episode of the podcast is about queer spirituality. Um, and so I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about that particular scene about where it, it seems like you almost have them. I don't know if you would say raising the dead or, or sort of doing doing something. They're in an AIDS memorial with a lot of names and they and they're doing this sort of beautiful ritual. So could you explain a little bit about your thinking with that? Well, actually, all of the father's project, except for really, really small selected scenes for the gay president sequences, are all real life rituals or they're real life events. That particular event was the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence were doing a ritual for Mm. this gay activist named Hank Wilson, who created all sorts of organizations in San Francisco, and they were basically canonizing him that day. And so I kind of took that layered it with this other scene that we shot in New Orleans of this leather man hanging out by a tree and this Mm -hmm. little kid happened to show up that day with his lesbian moms. It's like the the way that fathers works. It's so crazy because there's so many of these weird, eerie coincidences that happen. And it's sort of my job to kind of channel all of this like spirituality part of it and make a cohesive narrative, which can be really, really difficult and time consuming. But that particular sister scenes was that were was something that they actually do, which is canonize saints. And I took that and basically appropriated it into the story of them imagining if they were right. doing something like that. But what it was are to some raise of your other favorite moments of sort of of queer ritual and and witchiness that you came across in doing the the research and filming for this? I mean, I've always been drawn to that kind of ritual, that queer ritual. So. A lot of the stuff that I decided to film for mm-hmm. Fathers is stuff that I've experienced before. There's a lot of stuff that I couldn't shoot just because some of it's really private. Right. For example, some of the radical fairy sanctuaries that I've been part of for a lot of years that I go to, you know, um, Beltane, those kinds of things. They're really beautiful and they're really ritual-based. A lot of a lot of the more obscure alternative queer rituals actually take mm-hmm. from Native American rituals especially within the radical fairy community because of the relationship that, for example, the founder of the radical fairies, Harry Hay had with um, the native American, this idea that, you know, native Americans had a a two spirit entity within their community that was revered. So, you know, trans people, um, gender fluid people, they were thought to be pretty much magical and they were revered as such. So a lot of these rituals that the radical fairies take from, um, borrow from a lot of those pagan and Native American stuff. So if you go to some place like, if you go to a Beltane ritual at one of the radical fairy sanctuaries in the United States, mm-hmm. you see a lot of ritual and 
It's really emotional it and it's really, that, really beautiful. You know, something that's much more accessible like nightlife seems to be a similarly kind of magical or, or spiritual kind of space. And you, you shoot that really and, and show that really beautifully, I think, in the second episode. So what is what does nightlife mean to you in, in this sense? There's no doubt that there's a reason that a lot of a lot of gay men mm-hmm. have called, you know, their nightclubs or church. The second episode opens with Stephen Pevner, who is a nightlife legend in New Was York, with the, who the continued same, right? the tradition yeah. of the St. George. Mm-hmm. And he produces the Black Party every year. And that's our longest running gay event. It's been going on 40 years now. What he talks about is how nightlife and um, the lights and the sounds and the music and the people and the, the loss of identity for that minute creates a kind of a religious ecstasy for people that's very similar to gospel churches, for example. And a lot of our nightlife is based on that. Gay men and gay people pretty much invented nightlife as we know it today. One thing that I love about the, the spirituality element of your series is, like you said, all the footage was taken from real queer communities, and then you sort of spin them as footage from um, these imagined queer-only colonies. And so watching it, it sort of made me think about the fact that this utopia that you're imagining sort of lives among us now in in some form. But also, when we think about AIDS, I want to say that it was it's the second episode of Father's where somebody says, see all these people, imagine a third are gone. That's what AIDS was like. To me, that was a very, it seemed almost like a biblical plague, like or a genocide or like a tragic, supernatural sort of reaping. And it's definitely been portrayed that way, obviously, by like fundamentalist religions, anti-gay religious sects who believe it was sort of a punishment for promiscuous behavior. How do you think about how queer people today can sort of reimagine those narratives and reclaim them for ourselves. I asked a really um, famous gay activist one time if he, I was in a car with him for like seven hours. We were traveling to go to Washington, D.C. to interview a senator about HIV criminalization. And on the way back, I asked him what's something that had been weighed on me and weighs, I think, on a lot of gay men, whether AIDS was a punishment And he told me AIDS was not a punishment. AIDS was about neglect. I think for me and for the project, and Stephen Pevner calls it a biblical plague, I think if we're able to spin it in that way for ourselves and sort of give it the narrative weight that it deserves within our community, I think that there's a lot of healing that can happen through that. This Greek tragedy, this biblical plague this moment that is so monumental and isn't that far gone i think that there's a lot that we can learn about ourselves and what we're built from so one thing that i really loved about uh, watching these episodes was that it just really allows queer people this sort of creative thinking and fantasy that straight people have always had and it works as a sort of permission to do that At the same time, I'm also wondering what some of the reactions have been. I'm wondering if, in particular, you've had any sort of pushback. I feel like most of the work that I try to do and have always tried to do has been to kind of put a mirror up to people. And I think a lot of art does that. Initially, when I ask survivors a question during those interviews, that's the most difficult part because it's like the question just slaps them across the face and 
it's the question being what it's what really if awkward happened? when i say yeah when we we're doing interviews mm-hmm. and i just flat out say what would the world look like if aids had never happened and it's important for me to record that brain process because it it for most survivors it doesn't even fit in there anymore because it's so the scope of it is so large that's the only initial pushback that i get and i get contradictory answers because there's there's so many schools of thought about what the world would look like and what aids actually did for the community or took away from it but after the episodes come out and most survivors see that i've interviewed them feature their interviews i mean people need to understand that it's not like i just pretend it never happened and then create this really exciting future we include the interviews with survivors in the opening of every episode because you have to you have to give that moment that time and you have to remind people like this is very real and i'm glad that you mentioned that shot where he says a third of these people would be dead because that was really important for that episode the only pushback i've gotten i think is more of I've got a couple of bad comments on World AIDS Day that people were like, this isn't what we should be thinking of. Mm. But most of those people haven't watched the episode. I think they just they just see the headline. You know, it's that same thing. So they just see the headline. And I try to engage with them when I can. I usually don't go into comments if they're really negative or whatever. But there was a few where buried within this really intense comment section was, he says, you know, I'm 57 years old. I would look ridiculous mm. on a dance floor. And I thought, oh, man, like, this is the heart of the project. Like, the reason that you think you would look ridiculous is because there's not a lot of 57-year-olds on the dance floor. So you feel alone and you don't know that there are a lot of places that I've seen firsthand that, you know, there's a lot of 57-year-olds on the dance floor. I dance with a lot of older men and my dance floors, for example. And so that's where I think a lot of the pushback, for example, for that person was... I think it comes from loneliness and from this fear and from this survivor guilt and from this really deep-seated jealousy of this generation, especially now that PrEP has come out. There's a whole wave of older gay men that feel like they may have missed some kind of boat. So there's a lot of a lot of that stuff comes out, but for the most part, it's all very positive. And I think people see the amount of effort that goes into it. I wonder if it also has to do with some of the pressures that uh, some gay men might feel to to be young and ageless or the idea that, you know, to be part of gay culture, you have to be on a dance floor. In certain cultures, there just hasn't been a lot of space made for people who who live a, <laughs> a, a quieter gay life and, and might, you know, engage their social lives or their spirituality in, in other ways. Yeah, those are the those tend to be the people that I don't get to reach too much, which is yeah. people that are like, you know, I haven't gone out in, in 15 years. And that that's more of a human thing than a gay thing, I've noticed. Especially if you if you are familiar with gay history, you realize that the, that the older gay man was a revered, had a revered place. Because, you know, I mean, I always say that my generation is the the last first generation, meaning like, we're able to pass down information a lot more, especially now that we have all this technology, if we use it right. Every generation had to start from scratch, every gay generation, because either the closet and law enforcement, then of course AIDS, then following AIDS, you know, there was a huge silence moment between the generations. Um, So if you don't kind of go out and search that history or you search that culture, you, it, it atrophies, like your, your ability to communicate with your community 
it's like it's like a muscle. And the, the happier older gay men that I've met through the radical fairies, through the gay Burning Man community, through San Francisco, through these like circuit parties, all of that stuff. Um, the gay men that I know that are that are happier as they get older are the ones that make the effort to continue to place themselves into these situations. And it's scary. I mean, <laughs> every gay bar is terrifying. It's true. <laughs> <laughs> Edmund White has a line in, a, I think it's his book, The Farewell Symphony, where he talks about how he's in a gay bar and it's like 1969 or something. And he just says how um, every gay man in that place is scared to be there. And I think once you once you remember that, I, I never forgot that because it's social anxiety for well, us. Yeah, thank so you prevalent, so you know? much for joining us. And thank you for making this uh, wonderful project. I think it's really, really special. And I hope our, our listeners will go out and watch it. Yeah. Can you tell folks where they can um, see it and, and learn more about the project? Absolutely. Um, you can head over to ifthelive.org. All episodes are going to go up there. There's a lot of content that's being put up there. We have a queer art shop to raise funds from queer art by queer artists for queer artists and tax deductible donations through the gay and lesbian the GLBT mm-hmm. historical society here in San Francisco. All right. So thank you so much. There's a lot to see and a lot coming up. Thank you very much. So we've talked about some of the less traditional ways in which queer people sometimes approach spirituality and religion. So we're going to turn now to a much more complex and barbed relationship, how some queer people reconcile organized religion and queerness. Given that religion has long been used in various ways to oppress LGBTQ people, it's no surprise that for many queers, there seem to be only two real options, renounce their religion or their sexuality. To talk about these dueling pressures, we're going to hear a story from Laura Root, a gay woman who's a member of Affirmation, an organization for LGBTQ Mormons and their allies. Let's listen. Uh, Hi, my name is Laura Root. I'm 48 years old, and I currently live in in Boise, Idaho. I was raised in the LDS Church and was an active member my whole life, right up until recently, this past spring, I was excommunicated from the LDS Church. There were little glimpses about my sexuality throughout my whole life, but for the most part, I just tucked those things away. And it wasn't until I was 44 years old that I really began to be honest with myself about my sexuality. So about four and a half years ago, it sort of, you know, it sort of hit me like a ton of bricks that, holy cow, I'm gay and I'm Mormon. And that, that took me into about a year-long depression. I'm just trying to sort through those two things because I thought I can't really be gay and Mormon at the same time. And how am I going to do that? Um, eventually, I, I worked through some of those things, both with a professional counselor, as well as just working on my own relationship with God and came to a point where I was comfortable with myself and my sexuality. And then I came out publicly. I told my parents first and then I told my siblings. and they, I think they were horrified, to be honest, um, but initially expressed their love for me, and they just really hoped that I wasn't going to get involved in, with another woman. And when I did, they really struggled with that. Um, I had some of my family members say that I was ruining our eternal family. One of my my brother's family didn't want my then-girlfriend and I to be around at Christmas time. They, they wouldn't let us be around their kids. This was a couple of years ago. So 
but since then they've all come around and um, they're pretty accepting of us for the most part. I don't think they still love that I'm married to a woman, but they've really come a long way. In fact, this next weekend we're going to be getting together with my family at the family Christmas gathering over in Eastern Idaho. And my wife is welcome to come and they want her to be there. And, and so we're happily going. Since I grew up LDS, I learned about, first of all, the importance of a personal relationship with God. And I was taught how to pray. How to pray. I was taught about the importance of prayer. And I was taught that, you know, if I have a sincere heart and I have faith in my heart, when I go to God with honest and sincere questions, that God will let me know the things that he wants to guide me in my life on. So I was on my knees a lot. I had a lot of tears and um, it was really, really hard. And eventually, I believe it was, was through prayer, God let me know in my heart that I am 100% accepted by him and that I am exactly who I'm supposed to be. Being Mormon is just as much a part of my identity as my sexuality. And I, I see the LDS Church really as my tribe. We speak the same language. It's, a, it's an organization that I spent decades serving in and um, communing with, with the people within that church. And I, I love the church, and I love the people in the church. I, I do have to say that the way that the, the church and the church leadership, their policies on uh, LGBTQ issues are reprehensible. And I can't say anything to defend their position because I, I don't agree with it. But I do, you know, as I think about this, I get this question a lot. And I, I guess the way I've resolved it in my own mind is I think of the church the same way I might think about um, a, a good friend or a, a close family member who was you know, doing things that I thought they shouldn't be doing. I still love them. And my belief is that eventually at some point they'll come around and get it right on this issue because I do think they have it wrong and they don't know they have it wrong. You know, I go to church and I kind of have to armor up a little bit because I know I might hear something that is painful or offensive or hurtful. There are other LGBTQ Mormons who think I'm kind of stupid, frankly, that I can for continuing to go to church. They feel like it's, it's harmful, that the church itself is harmful and damaging to this, this community. And I, I do agree to that, or I do agree with that uh, to a point. So on the one hand, you know, the members of the LDS church give me a hard time for being in a, in a gay marriage, and members, many members of the gay community give me a hard time for continuing to attend this church that... Um, has policies and practices that are very harmful to the LGBTQ community. Yes, yeah, so I'm, I'm sort of caught in the middle, and that's one of the reasons why I've tried to maintain my personal relationship with God and simply do what I feel like is the best thing for me to do, and I stay away from what other groups of people are telling me that they think, what they think I should do, do what I feel like I need to do. On Death, Sex, and Money, we feature interviews with you, our community of listeners, getting honest about uncomfortable things. I developed an illness where it isn't safe for me to drive. 
A friend once said to me, sex is like air. You don't think about it until you're not getting enough. This is a similar sort of thing if you just replace sex with driving. Listen to Death, Sex, and Money wherever you get podcasts. Now we're going to get to some advice. We have a question from Valentina, a listener. Her question is, Is someone attracted to the same gender if they only like lesbian or gay people? I have found myself attracted to lesbian and bi women, but never felt attracted even the slightest to straight women, no matter how sexy or beautiful. Who wants to take the question first? I'll start. I'll say that, yes, if you're attracted to the same gender, um, if you only like lesbian gay people. I mean, the way that I was thinking about it earlier was it's a not corrosive version of people having types, I guess. Um, like it make like I have a lot of queer friends who, you know, they might they're will say they're a gay man and they're just like, oh, like I just am not into very like straight presenting dudes. And, you know, I think part of that stems from like a various reasons, kind of like what that sort of presentation presents to a person who's queer, right? It can be something that's a huge turnoff. It can be something that's a sign of like danger or something that's just uninviting. And so it seems like an almost, it it makes sense to me when, when I kind of like talk about it out loud that like you would be attracted to queer people, but not necessarily straight people. Yeah. I mean, anybody in any sexual orientation is not attracted to every person of that, of whatever gender or genders they're attracted to. Um, I also think it makes a lot of sense to only be attracted to people who might also be attracted to you or like know how to have sex with you or something like that. But I would also question how this person knows that all the people they're attracted to are lesbians or bi women. The fact that she states it with such certainty makes me think that maybe she's attracted to masculine of center or gender nonconforming women because, you know, there are a lot of people who you might think are straight but who actually aren't. And and in that case, you know, that's also a type that a lot of people have and that people, you know, talk openly and freely about is not something Yeah, to be the only thing I would add to I think y'all are both right. The only thing I would add to that is th- this just sort of brings to mind the fact that we, you know, when we talk about sexual orientation, we're I think a lot of times we think about it in a very sort of medical or biological sense, right? Like so if I'm gay, that means that I'm a man who's attracted to men. But I think actually what this this question is picking up on a little bit is that like it may be orientation may be as cult, as much cultural as it is um biological. To be gay, yes. I, I think means uh to be I don't even know if attracted to is the right word, but like interested in gay people like or other, you know, like other people, uh, men who are in for me in that same sort of universe. I might notice like other straight guys and think that like a straight guy is, is good looking, but I'm actually not like interested in that person because we're not in the same space right so so i i think that that's that's kind of what this question is picking up up on a little bit is that that orientation is 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 probably as, as much a cultural thing as it is a biological thing and it maybe is more helpful to think about those two elements together i'll also say that um one of the gayest people i know a slate coworker who i will not name because i did not get their permission but who identifies basically with every letter on the uh, lgbtq plus spectrum 
says and takes great pride in the fact that they're only attracted to queer people, even queer people mm-hmm. who might not know they're queer yet. <laughs> and I I admire that. And I kind of don't doubt that because I think a lot of times people who might not have ever had a queer relationship or self-identify that way will sometimes give off a vibe when they're mm-hmm. around visibly queer people or people who that they, who they, they resonate. know are yep, LGBT. For sure. I agree. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they totally resonate. It was a great question. Thank you so much for sending it, Valentina. If any of our current listeners have questions they'd like us to weigh in on, please send us an email at outwardpodcast at slate.com. All right. That's about it for Outward this week. Um, But before we go, we'd like to send you off with your monthly gay agenda. Sticking with our theme for this month, we're going to talk about a queer experience or object or something that took us to church. So that that was sort of a spiritual uh, encounter for us. So Brandon, what do you have? So I am a (laughs) cliche of myself, as everyone knows by this point. Um, So my gay agenda item, which I mean very sincerely and earnestly, is Mm. the Immaculate Collection. So Madonna's first to greatest hits compilation album um, from 1990, which, you know, was a great year. (laughs) It was. So I listened to the album while I was prepping for this. Um, and really one of the first things that kind of jumped out jumped out to me was just how much religion and spir- spirituality are salted sort of with queerness and vice versa across the album. So, you know, you have the more sort of like on the nose, uh, obvious references to religion, right? So the title itself, you know, is a reference to uh, Immaculate Conception. You have the wildly popular songs like Like a Prayer, But what really jumped out to me was just how much spirituality-like feelings permeate across the album. And so, for instance, I'm thinking of a song like Lucky Star, on which uh, Madonna says, shine your heavenly body tonight, uh, because I know you're going to make everything all right. Or like one song I've been listening to on repeat um, for like the past week (laughs) while prepping for this episode uh, is Cherish, right? Where it's this song that is about devotion. And so while I think like so many good pop albums, it's an album that's about love. I think a more accurate descriptor is probably that it's an album about devotion. And I think what's so cool about it is, you know, for Madonna, it almost works as its own sort of devotional prayer book. And she is sort of retooling the sort of spirituality like devotion, you know, turning it from something that's heavenly and, you know, sort of aiming it at a more sort of earthly sort of like love, which I think is something that resonates, obviously, not just with, you know, straight people, but it's something that allows a lot of like queer creativity and imagining. And, you know, if you combine that with the fact that Madonna is, you know, a huge gay icon, um, it all makes sense. And so I remember just listening to particular songs on the album when I was little. And I was just like, ooh, I feel like the way that she's talking about it is not the way that like we would talk about it in church, but also (laughs) this feels right. And so that is my gay agenda item. Who's going to go next? Christina. I'll go next. I would like to recommend uh, The Great Believers. It's a new-ish novel by one of my favorite authors, Rebecca Mackay. It came out in June, um, but I'm just getting around to reading it now. Um, So this is a story with two parallel timelines. Um, One is in the mid-80s following a group of gay men and one gay man in particular in Chicago as they work and live and love. The L word song. I just said the L word theme song, basically. <laughs> loving, living, loving, baby. And, and, you know, they're confronting the AIDS epidemic. And the other story, you know, 
the chapters sort of switch back and forth between the two. The other one is 30 Years Later, 2015, where the sister of one of the men who was lost to AIDS, but whose chosen family was that group of gay men. Um, she's in Paris trying to find her estranged daughter who was sucked into this fundamentalist uh, religious cult. This actually would have been a good book to talk about in our family episode, too. But it's it's really immersed me in the idea of queer spirituality and especially as it relates to the AIDS epidemic, the way people reckon with and understand senseless tragedy uh, and the generational repercussions of those tragedies and finding meaning in histories, imagining futures. One of the storylines has to do with art and communities of artists and belief and hope. I love this book. I mean, I, like I said, I love the author, Rebecca Mackay. I also highly recommend her collection of short stories, Music for Wartime. Um, but in, in this book, as in all her work, all of the characters are so beautifully and vividly rendered and singular, even in, the, in this circle of gay men, which I think could have been really easy to write in sort of broad strokes. I mean, all of them have very different philosophies about this uh, plague that they're facing and their ways of healing and their ways of finding transcendence in the midst of that. I really can't recommend it enough. It's It's gotten a lot of acclaim this year. But I think especially for queer people, you know, even though the straight media has been praising that it, I think we, we should claim it as our own. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's called yeah, The Great I'll, Believers. I'll that up. Great believers. So Christmas when I think West. about where I sort of have my queer spiritual, you know, moments of transcendence, it's it's often in whether whether it's in a physical space or engaging with like an art piece is something like Leo's web series where it's it's a true queer vision uh, that I'm able to sort of be enveloped in and and just sit there with it right so uh, another example of that that I've been really loving recently is a new podcast called Dream Boy it is coming from uh, the folks who make Night Vale if you're familiar with that podcast and it's made by this artist um, yeah, and, and composer and writer called Dane Terry. And it's it's very, it's a tough like story to sort of relay. So I won't, I'm not going to try to do that too much. But basically it, it, the narrator is also named Dane. He's a gay guy who works at a zoo in Cleveland um, where there is a murderous zebra. And it's very uh, nocturnal. Um, the mood is very atmospheric and kind of weird, like Nightville is. Um, and there are drag queens and a lot of discussion of grinder and really hot gay sex scenes and with audio. That's particularly interesting. I don't think we get a lot of that. Um, lots of frightening dreams. And it's got this beautiful score. Um, and the production's just gorgeous. It's a, it's a real queer piece of art. And it's very exciting. And it's sort of ongoing now. It's, I think it started in October. And they're doing like an episode, it seems like every two weeks or so. So definitely go check that out. And I, I suspect it will give you a little bit of a spiritual experience. It certainly has me. Oh, that sounds so yeah, good. It really does. And I'm about to have a pretty long car ride to go visit family for the holidays. So yeah. definitely listen to that. Mm -hmm. Well, we hope you enjoyed the show. Please send us feedback, topic ideas, and advice questions at outwardpodcast at slate.com or via Facebook or Twitter at Slate Outward. Thank you to Danielle Hewitt, who provided production assistance for this episode. Our producer is Daniel Schrader. Slate Podcast's senior managing producer, June Thomas, is Quoth Mariah, all we want for Christmas. If you like Outward, please subscribe in your, in your podcast app, tell your friends about it, and rate and review the show so others can find it. We'll be back in your feeds on January 16th with an episode on queer travel. Stay gay while on holiday, Brian and Christina. No problem. Stay gay, Brandon. <laughs>
Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets.